0: This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. Thank you very
1: much. Good morning, all. It is a great pleasure for me to welcome you all to this uh, 27th annual conference of uh, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. But it is also very sad that uh, this 27th annual conference should be dedicated and should be marking the passing of uh, Anthony Smith, who was the founder of ASIN and who passed away uh, last summer. The theme of this uh, year's conference is Anthony D. Smith and the Future of Nationalism, Ethnicity, Religion, and Culture. It is a theme that expresses and celebrates the many scholarly and personal interests of Anthony Smith. Anthony was a multidimensional man, and he showed us how multidimensional the study of nationalism is, and nationalism as such is. Uh, Anthony was a Renaissance man, He was a Renaissance man, both uh, metaphorically and literally. He loved uh, the Italian Renaissance, and Italy was uh, often the holiday destination of his summer summer vacation uh, with his family. And uh, he loved uh, more broadly European culture, its art and its music, although he was himself a Eurosceptic, and he always stressed in his work the hebrew and the classical roots of this european culture and its offshoot the culture as well as the politics of nationalism when i learned about uh, antony's passing dante's words came to my mind uh, what, what dante said upon the death of his beloved beatrice uh, he said uh, and these are the, thought, the words that came to my mind quomodo sedit sola civitas how lonely the city stands. These are words that I'm sure Anthony also knew, and not just through Dante, but also through Jeremiah, who lamented uh, the abandonment of Jerusalem um, and, and the capt- after the, the Jews were captured and were taken into exile in Babylon. But Anthony's passing has left us a very rich legacy, an intellectual legacy and a social legacy. First of all, his massive and, and, uh, and very varied work for which a new period now begins, a period of interpretation, a period of exegesis about what Anthony really meant when he wrote this or that. And secondly, Anthony has left us Aysen, this association for the study of ethnicity and nationalism which uh, he founded um, and uh, he, he formed as an association of international uh, scholars uh, who are 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 dedicated to the study of nationalism as a historical and human phenomenon. But also, you must never forget that ASIN was uh, created by friends. And ASIN is an association of friends. Uh, It was created by uh, the friendship between uh, professors and their postgraduate students, uh, and these professors were um, Anthony Smith, uh, Professor Percy Cohen, James Mayall, George Shapflin, and uh, the students. Their students were Natividad Gutierrez, who is uh, here, um, Daniele Conversi, myself, Alison Palmer, and uh, Laurel Jarregui. And uh, it is, uh, and as such, as. as um, it, it, ASIN was an association of friends, and as ASIN grew, the friendships grew, and it is always a great pleasure for me to see um, at each annual conference how new friendships are formed and old friendships are renewed, and I I very much hope that these friendships will continue to thrive and that they will expand and that um, they will preserve Anthony's core legacy. Which is the legacy of the importance of the study of nationalism, and by honouring in this way Anthony's legacy, I am sure we will secure the future of nationalism studies. Uh, I hope very much that you will enjoy today's conference, and uh, uh, which is actually a two-day conference. Today and tomorrow, you will enjoy the conference. Uh, that uh, the two chairs of the conference have brilliantly organized for us, together with the ASEAN uh, coordinator. And uh, you know the names Alessia, Penny, and Esther. Enjoy. Thank you.
2: Okay, um, we'll now commence with the, uh, the plenaries. I just want to say I'm also a, a student of Anthony's, and I can attest to the, um, the immense influence he's had on my thinking and that of uh, quite a number of his students, uh, many of whom are here today as well. Um, so, just today on the plenary, we're going to begin uh, with Anne Rigney, who is um, basically a, a scholar, uh, well, who is basically holds the Chair of Comparative Literature at the University of Utrecht. Um, and she's written three uh, important monographs, the first one being The Rhetoric of Historical Representation, Three Narrative Histories of the French Revolution, uh, Second Imperfect Histories, The Elusive Past and the Legacy of Romantic Historicism. That's from Cornell, 2001. And most recently, The Afterlives of Walter Scott, Memory on the Move, Oxford, Uh, 2012. So without uh, further ado, Anne, you have the floor.
3: So let me begin by saying wishing you a good morning. It's the first time I've given a keynote at 9 o'clock in the morning. Um, I'm very happy to be here and I'm very honoured to have the uh, um, uh, first uh, talk this morning. Uh, I've heard a lot about this conference, so I'm very glad uh, to have the chance uh, to participate, even though, as you will see, I'm not a specialist in nationalism and and, uh, ethnicity studies, but rather in memory studies. So I want to set the scene for this talk by referring to the annual commemorations of World War II in my adopted country, the Netherlands. Every year on the evening of the 4th of May, solemn events take place across the country to commemorate the victims of the war. The two-minute silence at eight o'clock in the evening is religiously observed in what is probably as close as one can get to the sense of an embodied national community. In recent years, however, there's been a growing concern about how to integrate first- and second-generation migrants into the annual 4th of May commemorations. The Moroccan minority, rather than other significant minorities, such as the Turks or the Surinamese, is a particular focus of these concerns, for the simple reason that anxieties about immigration have crystallized around the Moroccans. Gert Wilders, yes, the guy with the blonde hair you may have seen, has been taken to court for incitement to racial hatred, directed at what he likes to call Moroccan scum. Finding a way to integrate Moroccans into the national commemorations hasn't been made any easier by some incidents when Moroccan youths use the 4th of May for public displays of dissociation from the national consensus, including displays of anti-Semitism. Research by Michael Rosberg and Yasemin Yildiz has revealed revealed similar tensions in Germany, where Turkish-German citizens find themselves in a double bind— They're not German enough to be stakeholders in the commemorations, but as long as they do not participate in the national commemorations, they're not really German or really Dutch, as in my case. Attempts to integrate Dutch-Moroccan citizens into Dutch memory have concentrated most recently on nine graves in a war cemetery in the south of the country containing the remains of Moroccan soldiers washed up on Dutch beaches in 1940. These graves were overlooked for many decades, but have recently become a point of reference in public debates about linking recent migrants to the liberation of the Netherlands in the 1940s. The logic seems to be that the presence of Moroccan bones on the territory of the Netherlands provides material grounds for present-day Moroccan Dutch citizens to become part of the Dutch story. The tangible evidence of Moroccan participation in World War II has thus provided a symbolic bridge between the majority Dutch and minority migrant community, who are now mutually recognized as stakeholders in the commemoration. Dutch-Moroccans have recently participated in the national commemorations on the 4th of May by visiting these graves, and much to the anger of ethno-populists, Moroccan flags have been deployed alongside the Dutch one on the 4th of May in communities with significant migrant populations. The fact that Moroccan-Dutch groups are now participating in the annual commemorations undoubtedly marks a significant change and a measure of integration. But it's also one that involves reinstating national differences within the notion of collective commemoration. It's together, but not quite. This act of nationalized remembering is simultaneously an act of overwriting namely overriding the fact that the said Moroccan soldiers were actually part of the French colonial army and that their struggle was part of a broader European and not just Dutch struggle. Dutch memories, in becoming more multi-ethnic, are also becoming less European and global, though this potential is clearly there in the background. So you could say it's two steps forward and one step back. Now, there's obviously a lot more that could be said about this case. I raise it here because it brings sharply into focus the importance of memory to identity, the importance of the national in the framing of that memory, and the difficulty of changing it. These are also some of the central issues in Anthony Smith's extraordinary myths and memories of the nation, with which I wish to dialogue today. As presumably you all know, Smith put a very strong case for the importance of studying what he called the role of the past in the creation of the present. Ethnohistory, which I take to mean both the shared history and the representation of that shared history, is for Smith a key element in the construction of national identity. I'm sorry, is there any water? Yeah. Thanks. He argued powerfully over and over again that a sense of continuity with the past, linked to the sense of shared origins, is the foundation of ethnic identities and the most important generator of collective loyalty and a belief in shared distinctiveness. In retrospect, however, there was a downside to his argument. The more Smith insisted on the importance of the past to the present, the greater the difficulty he had in envisaging how people can change their past or how ethnic groups might somehow merge and integrate so as to form new constellations, something that seems to be called for, as my Dutch example indicates, by the transnational entanglements of today's world. Towards the end of, of the chapter on ethnic nationalism and the plight of minorities, Smith indicated a desire to move beyond a world of nations, and the exclusionary mechanisms it entails. But overall, he seems rather pessimistic on this score. And in reacting to his work today, I hope to mitigate the grounds for his pessimism by revisiting the notion of myth, and particularly of memory. As the title of his book indicates, myth and memory are key terms in Smith's analysis. The meaning of myth in his argument seems relatively straightforward. Myths are deeply rooted identity narratives which can be reactivated over and over again in the interpretation of new situations. They are associated with deep time or timeless truths, and because their truth is unquestioned, they have an enormous power to mobilize affect and the sense of an, an immutable identity. Indeed, they are often about the origin of the ethnic. So they're not changed easily and are rarely contested because they are central to identity, but also because they are inherently unfalsifiable, being so rooted in deep time. In contrast, Smith's concept of memory remains elusive. While the word memory keeps showing up across the different essays, it usually occurs in conjunction with related terms, with myths, of course, but also ethno-history, heritage, beliefs, traditions, and so on, as part of a broader semantic field that, in my view, calls for much more precise mapping. Disconnecting the concept of memory from that of myth would be a crucial first step. For a reader in 2017, certainly for someone like me who has spent decades on the question of memory, it's striking that the only literature on memory that Smith refers to thank you, in any detail is Yerushalmi's work on Jewish memory. While there are references to Anderson's imagined communities, Hobsbawm and Rangers' invented traditions, and while Pierre Nora's work on sites of memories listed in a footnote, Smith's analysis does not benefit from the rich body of literature that had been already appearing since the early 1990s. Even more striking is that Smith's analysis should only make the very briefest of references to 20th century history and to the living memory of recent historical events. It does refer briefly to the Holocaust, but this is to explain the resonance of Masada in Jewish ethno-history. So although memory is everywhere in myths and memories, it, as a phenomenon it remains curiously elusive and as an analytic tool rather blunt. From our vantage point today, it's possible, I think, to give a greater traction by drawing on concepts and models from the field of memory studies. This will help us to give, I think, an extra dimension to what I believe is one of Smith's key insights, and that is arguably at the heart of his distinction between myth and memory, namely the idea that both long-term and shorter-term processes are at work in the way the past helps create the present. Now, this isn't uh, the place to give you a detailed introduction to the field, and I'm I'm very aware that I'm I'm in danger danger of giving you too much in one go. Um, But basically what I want to argue and and show today is that we should look at memory as as something dynamic, as, as something that's in process, rather than as a fatal and immutable legacy. Now, memory studies as an interdisciplinary field of inquiry has emerged in the last, say, 20, 30 years, bringing together scholars in the humanities and social sciences around the question, uh, together around the question, how do societies remember and how does this impact on social relations? Now, the preferred term of those working in the social sciences is collective memory, the term used by Morris Halwax in the 1920s, and the preferred term of those in the humanities, including myself, is cultural memory, the term used by Jan and Delida Asman from the early 90s on, 1990s on, and further developed by Astrid Earle and others in recent years. As the name suggests, cultural memory is specifically concerned with the role of narrative in shaping the understanding of the past. The role of media in transmitting and distributing those narratives, and their power to mobilise affect and loyalty. So it's all about storytelling. In fact, if we say, what sort discipline do I belong to? It's the discipline that's concerned with storytelling. As as this field, this interdisciplinary field, has continued to develop, it's very clear that studies of the collective and of the cultural are actually two sides of the same uh, coin, and there's much more conversation going in um, between the two sort of blood groups. Now, people often think of memories in terms of family heirlooms that are passed on unchanged from generation to generation, as if they were fixed objects, stored away in a cupboard, and you take them out and you pass them on to the next generation. Cultural memory studies approaches memory instead as a, and I have some here key terms I just want to flag here, Uh, cultural memory studies regards memory in terms of a practice in the present, it's about about acts of remembering, so it's it's a a a phenomenon in the present. To be sure, there are cultural continuities between past and present, and the material archive is very important in this regard. But the working memory of a society, to use Alida Asman's terms, is always selective, and it's always being constituted based on the interests and concerns of the group doing the remembering, and not on the, on the entire archive of all the things that might have been remembered. But that being said, memory is not just a one-way process. things that have been overlooked may later become relevant and a new working memory be produced from the archive. And I'd ask him to talks about dialectic between the archival memory and working memory. A second important uh, concept is that of mediation. If you think about about how your own views of the past, where have they come from, they've been shaped by books, images, television, radio, uh, and through uh, ritual commemorations, as in the Dutch case I mentioned earlier. Because it's only through acts of communication carried by media that memories are transmitted from one person to another and from one generation to another. And it's very striking to me that in rereading Smith's work that he says very little, if not anything at all, about the modes of transmission of memory. From coming to this in, in, issue from, the question, from cultural memory studies and the, more broadly from cultural studies, the question of the modes of transmission is crucial. And a central cu- concern is with the question how each particular medium shapes the memory, and in doing so involves individuals, the heads and hearts of individuals in distinctive ways. So the question is how does a medium shape the memory? You could think here just a very basic example of the difference between Luchin's monument to the missing at Tjepfal and the movie or novel All's Quiet in the Western Front in terms of the way in which they recollect the war but also engage the knowledge, imagination and emotions of individual citizens who are involved with them. Now, these examples, because of the repetition across two different types of storytelling, they also show that media rarely function by themselves. Memory is never carried just by one medium. It's distributed across a wide variety of media that interact with each other. So it's by dint of repetition or reiteration at crucial sites that um, uh, stories are actually distributed and disseminated and become culturally and socially speaking alive. And not just across different media, but also across different platforms, from academic and artistic ones to memory institutions such as museums, education programs, and official commemorations. And by virtue of such... Uh, repetition and uh, crucial sites some narratives take on an official status in the form of publicly sponsored monuments and official commemorations and Alain has is talking usefully distinguishing this regard between civil society memory and official memory as a different way of looking at the ways in which uh, memory is, moves from the private to the public and from the public into the, the official in short, it's thanks to the circulation of remembrance across different media and platforms that memories are shared, that they become collective. They are not by nature collective. They become collective through these processes of sharing. Now, the collective is variously constituted, however. It consists of different interlocking mnemonic communities, which is the term from Bavel. Let me just um, list some of them. Here you see some of them, uh, the different mnemonic communities uh, which can be the, result, the outcome of this process of sharing. Note that the collectives involved in the production of shared memories are not just national ones. Halvax had already noted, Halvoax himself in the Cadres Sociaux de la Memoire, <laughs> had already noted the importance of family, religion, and class as social frameworks of memory. And I think by now we can add to his list uh, uh, ci- uh, ci- uh, civic the, the idea of the civic belonging to a city, regions, Europe, and even, in some people will go as far as, to say, the planet. In other words, ethnicity may always involve memory, but not all memory involves an ethnicity. What we have instead is a multi-scale scalar generative model of memory, and although I've listed these, scale, these different communities in terms of the scales, uh, the, the sort of geographical scale, it's not meant as a hierarchical one. One of the things that has emerged from studies of post-war memory, and particularly Mariana Hirsch's work on what she calls post-memory, is the importance of the family unit in the transmission of testimonies to the next generation. Some but not all of these private family narratives become entangled with other narratives circulating in the, pub, in the public media. So a key concern is with the interplay and exchanges between all these different scales of memory in the elaboration, spread, and transformation of narratives. OK, so this is the constitution, these are the constitutive elements of my model. And now I want to talk about the question of dynamics. How, what's going on here? How does, the, how does this system change? As I suggested at the beginning of my talk, the case with which I began, the question of how do you change memories, how do you include more people, is a crucial one. Halvax claimed that social memories pre-exist remembrance and shape the selection of what is relevant or not. My model suggests instead a set of feedback mechanism whereby cultural remembrance generates communities at various scales, while actual experience can challenge existing memory narratives. So this is why I've represented this as a spiral. It's an ongoing sort of uh, system. Minority groups often signal their demand for recognition, re- recognition through calls for more inclusive stories or challenges to dominant ones uh, from which they have been excluded. So in light of this, we have to theorize um, so here we have this idea of countergroups. Um, in light of this, remembering has come to be theorized as inseparable from forgetting, with forgetting recognized as a complex process in its own right. And I'm drawing he- on here from uh, a recent work by uh, Paul Connerton, Paul Higuer, and Stoller, who from different perspectives have been developing useful distinctions between di- among different types of amnesia and different f- processes of unforgetting. In his classic essay, What is a Nation?, Ernest Ronan himself had already flagged the importance of forgetting when he pointed out that nations have to remember many things in common, but also that they need to have forgotten those things that divide them, such as the St. Bartholomew Massacre and the Albigensian Crusade in the French case. Unforgetting what has been marginalised is key to the periodical recalibrations and identity and to the slow and often painful um, emergence of counter-memory. One could use many examples here, but let me just refer to the uh, memory wars raging in Spain about the legacy of the Civil War which involves very complex processes. On the one hand, we could talk about about the uncovering of a law of a submerged Republican memory through these very highly mediated uh, exhumations of the disappeared. Um, On the other hand, we can see uh, attempts to undo memory to to counter the impact of the uh, decades of Francoist domination of the memory of the Civil War. So it's through such acts of counter-remembrance at at different locations that collective memory is remade and negotiated step-by-step and myths are challenged. And I want to propose that these myths are the memory, the production of new memories is in a way of also challenging myths. Yael Sarubavel has refer to turning points in memory where a dominant narrative ceases to sustain identities in a changing society and gives way to an alternative. One of the big questions then is at what point does a dominant narrative collapse and give way to something different? But I think there is evidence to show that there there are such turning points. And I would point to a turning point in recent decades in the case of um, uh, the ways in which, in tandem with the peace process in Northern Ireland, the overlooked memory of the Irishmen who served in the British Army in World War I has been integrated into the official memory in the Republic of Ireland. This, you can look at the different stages by which this took place, but in 2016 it was very clear that it was uh, something which was being recognized alongside the rising of 1916. So crucially what I'm trying to argue here is that debates about the past and debates about the memory that people share should be seen as resources for negotiating new social relations in the present. And it's worth noting that such debates usually bear on relatively recent events, so on living memory, and are less frequent in the case of distant myths of ethnic origins for which there's no compatible repository of alternatives. Change can, I've talked about change, as coming from counter-memory from groups who have historically been on the other side of history, as it were. But change can also come from the uncovering of narratives that seemingly have had no connection with the dominant one, at least not at first sight. The participation of colonial soldiers in European armies in the two world wars was for long overlooked, simply wasn't just part of the story. Um, but it's being slowly retrieved from oblivion, and my initial Dutch example is part of this, but one could also point to a whole series of histories, novels, movies and memorials that are beginning to resonate with each appear and resonate with each other and gain public visibility across Europe. And new stories, in order to gain traction and the power to displace earlier ones, because we're talking about an economy of of stories here, they will often piggyback on existing narratives or narrative templates. And by way of illustration, just to point to you, uh, the, this uh, book Black Poppies which is a clearly a way of flagging um, it's about the participation of black Caribbean soldiers in the British Army in World War I but it's clearly a way of staking its claim to be part of the story uh, by uh, just refiguring the uh, idea of black poppies, unfortunately I have no time for the other story But this brings me to the final point I want to make about the dynamics of cultural memory, the the changes that occur in the culture of memory itself. And I'm using the word memory culture here by analogy with the German term Erinnerungskultur. So what do I mean by memory culture? The fact that, as with other cultural practices, there's a periodization to cultural remembrance. And this variability, affects, among other things, the moral register of memory and the cultural forms appropriate to its expressions. These change over time. Smith talks at length about the importance of myths, of courage, of regeneration, and of a national golden age as a key to ethnic identities. And indeed, memory cultures, until at least the First World War, were dominated by an emphasis on triumphs and victories, and the heroic individuals deemed responsible for them. A case in point is offered by the very large monuments to the very great artists and writers that adorn many city squares across Europe, and that they're designed to mobilize civic and national pride. And I'm drawing here on a study that I conducted with you, Blairson about the viral spread of these statues across Europe. They're clearly about pride and about greatness. Arguably, since World War I and certainly since World War II, there's been a paradigm shift to, towards an emphasis on suffering, victimhood, mourning, and the things we're not so proud of. And here I'm drawing on the wonderful work by Jay Winter on 20th century commemorative cultures. In the last half century, a traumatic model of remembrance and what Jeff Ollick has called a politics of regret has governed what is considered appropriate for commemorations and commemor- memorialization. History is where it hurts. This paradigm shift in memory cultures has, c- has gone in hand with a minimalist aesthetic in public memorials. And I just use memorials here as the most visible part of memory culture. Consider the difference between the Waterloo Monument, built by the Dutch, by the way, uh, because they consider themselves to have played a very important part in Waterloo, to this enormous monument. It reaches upwards and outwards with a confident look towards the future. And if you compare that with Maya Lin's Vietnam Memorial, which is, it, this is dark, downward-looking. It's a place for mourning the dead, who are then also uh, individually listed on the monument. There is no individual names on the Waterloo Monument. This aesthetic has been replicated, the aesthetic of Maya Linz, has been replicated in multiple monuments across the world, including most recently the new Holocaust monument planned for Amsterdam that also involves panels with lists of names. So this has become, as it were, a global language of commemoration. I note these, these, these changes from the triumphalist from pride to mourning to emphasize again how important the medium is to the message the fact that collective memory is shaped and enabled by the historically variable and, but, and also globally circulating languages that we have for articulating it so we develop languages for creating languages that Okay so having talked to, given you the basic outlines of, of this dynamic of uh, um
0: Ethno-symbolism recognizes the deep roots of some national sentiments while seeing the equal validity of a social constructionist perspective of nationalism in many other cases. The complexity and variety of the forms that nationalism assumes are fully acknowledged if one looks at the myriad examples of these types of identity through both an historical and comparative lens. So where does Trump and current populist nationalism trends fit into this wider picture? David, David Runciman has argued in a recent essay in the London Review of Books called Tocqueville to Trump that this event may well represent the beginning of the collapse of Western democracy itself. Taking the long durée perspective on the ebb and flow of democratic processes Runciman raises the interesting but uncomfortable notion that just like so many earlier systems of government, the greatest threat to any regime is not outside enemies, but internal decay from forces within the community itself. Starting from the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, Deng Xiaoping's reversal of Maoist economics, to be rich is glorious, Sounds more like Donald Trump than Karl Marx to me. And the apparent triumph of neoliberal regimes over more socially egalitarian alternatives. For some, the end of history became the mantra of a globalized group of elites worshiping the market as a religious or quasi-religious symbol but acting as a smokescreen to obscure the blatant disregard for true market forces under monopoly capitalism. The gap between the super-rich and the poorer masses of the global population was starkly demonstrated recently by Oxfam before the Davos gathering of the world's business and political elites in January. The top eight wealthiest billionaires on the planet own more assets than the bottom 3.6 billion people confirming that inequality is continuing to rise and threatening to lead and I quote the two seismic political changes in the words of one director of Oxfam and I quote again inequality is trapping hundreds of millions in poverty it is fracturing our societies and undermining democracy Such a diagnosis is not confined to global disparities that have always been considerable, but can be seen in the long-term trends in American society itself. While public attention has been focused on promoting democracy in the Middle East and elsewhere, much less concern has been given to the health of democracy at home. The proliferation of lobbyists on K Street, or the relentless movement towards plutocracy aided by the Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission ruling of the Supreme Court in January 2010, undermining democratic decision-making in a quieter but just as effective manner as some of the tyrants temporally dislodged by the Arab Spring. This latter measure opened the floodgates of outside money into the political system, using the farcical argument that money was simply an extension of free speech, and that bribery and corruption could only be prosecuted if pursued in an entirely open and blatant fashion. The inspiration behind this decision was the late Justice Antonin Scalia Whose name now adorns the law school at George Mason University, the university in Virginia that I joined on my return to America in 1988. You can imagine the number of my former colleagues um, uh, reacting to this decision of naming and uh, uh, not necessarily too happy with it, although the law school seemed to be quite uh, uh, pleased. Of course, it came with a lot of money uh, as well from the Koch brothers. It is perhaps no surprise that there is a current revival of interest in George Orwell's writings, and particularly his novel 1984, among many disturbed by these trends in American politics. Another approach to explain the phenomenon of Donald Trump has been proposed by the Berkeley sociologist Ali Hochschild, whose detailed research on the Tea Party movement over the past five years has sought to better understand the thinking of the supporters of the political right wing of the Republican Party. Based on research in rural Louisiana, some of the poorest areas of contemporary America and often dismissed and stereotyped by the so-called liberal media as the land of rednecks and ignorant bigoted southerners, reveals a much more nuanced picture in reality. The title of Hochschild's book, Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right, captures the alienation and insecurity of sections of the country that seem to have been passed over by the American dream. And much the same picture emerges from other ethnographic fieldwork in other parts of the country as for example Catherine Kramer's recent study in rural Wisconsin described in her her book The Politics of Resentment. The insecurity in these geographical locations extends even to those who would be generally categorized as middle class. I won't go into the way in which most Americans look at the concept of middle class or have until recently, Warren Buffett and his secretary both belonging to the same social group, is an interesting way of stretching uh, the situation, but this is clearly tied very closely to the notion of the American dream. This pervasive sense of concern, then, has been captured by a number of thinkers. The political economist Kathleen McNamara writes, and I quote, daily interactions with trailer park dwellers with missing teeth and broken homes leads many to fear that they are but one step away from economic insolvency and the shame of welfare. Such a prospect is part of the insecurity that Trump's campaign has so successfully exploited. The steady proliferation of these concerns has created an enormous sense of resentment against those living in the growth economies of the cities and the coasts. America is an incredibly divided society. If you watch American television, you can see that pretty quickly. Uh, They see themselves as being uh, ignored by the distant elites who despise them as small-town, ignorant, religious bigots. And this, of course, is so very different from the previous normal acceptance of the American dream, where almost everyone believed that they could be successful in a golden age of economic growth, provided they were hard-working, and never gave up trying. Until recently, or relatively recently, few Americans fully appreciated George Carlin's famous joke. They call it the American dream because you have to be asleep to believe it. (laughs) Now the reality of American society for so many living in rural, small-town settings throughout the Midwest and the South or in the economically depleted Rust Belt where manufacturing used to provide steady, well-paid jobs for those with only a high school education. It's beginning to sink in. Even the ever-escalating costs of public higher education as state budget uh, support is reduced by fiscally conservative state legislatures has increasingly acted as a class filter rather than a ladder for social mobility private higher education is even more obscenely expensive so that students who understand that qualifications are a vital prerequisite for entry into the knowledge economy borrow money to finance their education and graduate with mountains of debt that has grown to unprecedented levels. By January this year, this had risen to $1.2 trillion dollars eclipsing auto loans and credit card debt and only exceeded by home mortgages. No wonder the lobbyists for the banking and finance companies who service this debt made sure that students, unlike insolvent business entrepreneurs, among which President Trump is a fine example, could almost never declare bankruptcy in order to avoid repayment. For most of these young people, the debt is debt for life. How to recapture the promise of the American dream for those largely excluded from it? And one that was debated heavily in the 2016 presidential campaign.